Officers brought atonement for a favor not earned. Reuben and God would fight for Israel, then return. We learn about the power of speech at the end of the Midbar, the land of Israel's within reach. So this week, there is a double Parsha, Parsha Matot and Parsha Maseh. And we also finally get to the conclusion of Sefer Bamidbar. Okay, so the Parsha Matot begins by talking about the power of speech and talking about Nadarim, which are vows, and also talking about Shvuot, uh, which are also types of, uh, of vows. So we learn um, that the, the Parsha begins by talking about how only the heads of the tribes, Moshe only told the heads of the tribes, not the general populace. And the Ramban has a fascinating explanation for why this is. The Ramban says that we learn about, um, that, that Moshe tells the heads of the tribes that they have the power to annul vows. To, when someone makes a vow, they can go to the heads of the tribes and the, the heads of the tribes will able, are able to uh, annul their vows. And the Ramban, the, the Ramban says that only, uh, only the heads of the tribes are told about this, this power and not the general populace because otherwise the speech would be weakened because people would be taking too much advantage of this loophole to make all sorts of nadarim, all sorts of vows. And then at the end of the day, they know that they have a loophole to get out of it just by going to the heads of the tribes. So in order to make sure that, you know, the head, that, that, uh, that language isn't cheapened, that people aren't making vows just knowing that they're able to cancel them right away, um, in an effort to, to make sure that language is still sanctified, then only the heads of the tribes know about this power that they have to annul vows. But the general populace thinks that when they make a vow, it's set. Okay, so moving on to the Parsha, we get this uh, interesting language, lo yachel devaro, which means um, he should not desecrate his word, talking about vows. When someone makes a vow, he shouldn't desecrate his word. And we could infer from this language that because it uses the word um, yachel to, to desecrate, we could infer that you can only desecrate something that's holy, something that matters, something that's important. And we could infer from this that his words are important, that words fundamentally are important. And when someone makes a vow, let's say someone says, you know, I'm not going to eat uh, any more potatoes for the rest of my life, then for that vow, those words carry a certain amount of weight. And if they were to eat potatoes, they would be punished for it by the court. And uh, this reminded me of, you know, something that's very big in privacy law, which is user agreements. You know, those agreements that uh, you just scroll through and say, uh, I agree, because you don't want to spend the time reading them. So what they're really used for is the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, can look at, you know, user agreements. For instance, the Federal Trade Commission can look at Facebook's user agreement. And if Facebook violates any of their, their own user agreement, Facebook is the one that wrote their user agreement, and if Facebook violates what they said they would do, the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, can come and enforce um, a penalty against Facebook for violating their own user agreement. And this is somewhat similar to Lo Yachel Devaro, the fact that 
a person can make you know a statement they're no longer going to eat potatoes and all of a sudden the court has um, the legal power to actually enforce that if that person eats potatoes they have the power to punish them and like i said similarly the federal trade commission can also punish a company that does not abide by their own user agreement okay moving on um, you know, so there's just a, a general concept that a lot of people, when they say some type of promise or whatever it happens to be, um, they'll say bli nether. So for example, you know, someone will say, hope, you know, I'll, I'll be there tomorrow, bli nether, meaning I'll be there tomorrow, but, but no promises. And I always thought that this language was a little bit confusing. Why do you have to say bli nether? You know, just show up. Uh, if you're going to say you're going to be there tomorrow, don't say no promises, just show up. And I think that the coronavirus taught me a very good lesson here that, you know, the reason you say Bli Neder is because you have to realize that you're not always in control of what you're going to do. Just because you say, you know, I'm going to be there tomorrow, then the coronavirus breaks out and all of a sudden you can't meet your promise and your words are cheaper. Your words lose their value by saying that you're going to do something and then not doing it. And that's why Bli Nader is often said, because it means no promises. I'm going to come tomorrow, but no promises. If there's a coronavirus that happens, then, you know, no promises. I may not be there, and my words won't be cheapened by saying Bli Nader. So I think the coronavirus kind of gave us a view of all those things we promised to do, we never said Bli Nader to, and all those, all those promises kind of went out the window. Um, okay, so moving on... Um, we have an interesting concept here. A father can secretly annul a vow um, that the daughter gives. And then because it was that it was secretly annulled, the daughter might go and do exactly what she said she wouldn't do. So we'll stick with the example. The daughter says, I'm not going to eat any more potatoes. The, the father hears it and says, I, you know, I'm going to get rid of that uh, vow. And then the daughter goes and does exactly what she wasn't supposed to and eats potatoes. And um, the Parsha says this is, the commentaries say this is similar to a person that thinks they're eating pig meat and it's actually kosher. And uh, we see that in, in this week's Parsha, Parsha, it says Hashem will forgive her. But the default is, because the Parsha has to say Hashem will forgive her, the default is Hashem wouldn't have forgiven her. Um, because, and that makes sense because she went she thought she was going against the will of God by eating a potato because she didn't know that that vow was that that vow was annulled by the father, and um, you know it's an interesting concept that you can even be punished for thinking you're doing the wrong thing even though in practice in all actuality you're not doing the wrong thing. So even just the thought of I'm going to go against you know the will of Shem by eating a potato even though I said I wouldn't, um, and even though the father already annulled it. So you, that the daughter actually could have eaten a potato. The default is Hashem wouldn't have forgiven her, but we learn in this week's Parsha that Hashem says, no, you will forgive her, even though she went against the will of, uh, or what she thought was against the will of God. Okay, moving on. Um, so we get to the battle against Midian. And um, the Parsha says this word, Vayimasru, which means they were delivered. And... Rashi says this is a little bit of a weird language that the, the the soldiers, the warriors, were delivered to the site. Why delivered? Why didn't they go happily? So Rashi says that Moshe dies after the war with Midian. We, we already know that from a prophecy that Moshe is going to die 
after the Jews beat Midian. And despite this, um, so so because the, the Jews might, might because we know Moshe is going to die, the leader of the Jewish people is going to die, the warriors didn't want to go into battle. They wanted to uh, hold back from battle uh, just to be with Moshe a little bit longer. And, you know, it's interesting, this whole Sefer of Bamidbar, we've seen Korach, we've seen the Meraglima, you know, all these different groups trying to battle um, and fight Moshe. And despite all of these complaints, um, we, we see that the, the people that are entering Israel actually do love Moshe. So as many attacks against Moshe as there been, uh, that, that there's been, we can see that Moshe actually does have good standing here because the people were afraid to go and battle Midian because once they, once they beat Midian, they knew that Moshe would die immediately after. Okay, so moving on, we see that when, um, so Moshe was angry with the warriors because um, they didn't end up killing the, the women uh, that had caused them to sin. And they saved all the women and they only killed all the men of Midian. And Moses was angry about this. So um, we learned something fascinating from Rashi. So they, they, following this, uh, this attack, Moses, so Eleazar, um, Eleazar taught the laws of koshering pots and pans. And Rashi says Moshe was the one that should have taught the laws of koshering pots and pans. But instead, Eleazar was put in his place and put, put in Moshe's place. It, so why was this? Why was it that Eleazar wasn't, was, was put in the place of Moshe and Moshe, Moshe wasn't able to teach the laws of koshering pots and pans? Rashi says it's because he was just angry. Rashi was, uh, Moshe was angry at the people because they hadn't killed the women also. And as a result, um, the anger, the, that emotion of anger, even though it was a positive anger, even though the, the Jews should have killed uh, the women, um, even though so, even though Moshe's anger was warranted, just the fact that he got angry caused him such strife, caused him su- such a you know um, illogical, um, uh, you know illogical thinking, that as a result, uh, that Moshe forgot he that that the power of anger is so 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 strong that you can forget everything that you're going to say. So Moshe forgot the laws of koshering pots and pans, and as a result, Elazar had to teach in his place. So Elazar says something interesting. He says, um, so this is already after the Jews battled. Um, after already, you know, after the Jews battled, um, battled Midian, and Elazar says, um, when you come to the battle, so it should have been past tense. It should have been, um, you know, now that you've come from the battle, but instead, no, it's you, when you will go to battle. So how do you answer this? I heard a fascinating and insightful answer. When you will come to battle, this is actually not talking about a physical force. This is not talking about the nation of Midian, but instead it's talking about the Yetzir Hara. Instead, it's talking about the evil inclination, that, that urge that a person gets after they win a huge battle against Midian, the all-powerful, extraordinarily wealthy Midian. When the Jews beat Midian, they might have, some of these warriors might have felt so haughty, so, um, you know, had such gaiva, uh, said, had such, you know, authority about them that all of a sudden they would, you know, trample everybody else's rights because they thought so highly of themselves after winning such a giant, giant battle against Midian. So Eleazar says, when you will come to battle, talking about 
um, not the battle with Midian, because the battle of Midian was already won, but instead talking about the battle with the Yetzir Hara, with that inclination that tells you after you want a big fight to trample everybody else. And that's a very bad inclination. Even after you win a big fight, you have to be on guard to make sure that you don't have this inclination that you're better than everyone else. And that's why it says when you will come to battle, because you will come to battle against the Yetzir Hara after they had already beaten that powerful enemy of Midian. Okay, moving on. Um, so the we learn in this week's Parsha that the Jews, after they won the battle against the powerful Midianites, not one single person was lost. Not one person, not one Jew was killed. And um, as a result, the officers bring an atonement offering. So why are they bringing an atonement offering? Nobody was killed, it's, and it seems like they didn't do anything wrong. So what's fascinating is there's a suggestion that um, this atonement offering was a redemption to Hashem for a favor that they didn't earn. You know, the Jews simply went to battle and not a single person was lost. That's not a normal battle. Usually there's fire back and forth and people on both sides are, are lost. But here, not a single Jew was lost. And as a result, the officers felt such gratitude that they were given a favor that they hadn't earned. They were given a favor that, you know, a normal battle, they were expecting to lose people. They didn't lose a single person. It was something that they did, something that, you know, was just beyond their capacity that, um, that gave them such a, an unbelievable merit that they felt they had to bring an atonement offering uh, for a re- as a redemption for a favor that you hadn't earned. And I think that's a beautiful lesson for us that, you know, for all those things that, again, that we haven't necessarily earned, that sometimes we should be extra thankful for those and realize for even those favors we haven't earned, we should be especially appreciative. And potentially, according to these officers, they are even willing to bring an atonement offering just to redeem themselves um, for, because Hashem was so abundantly kind um, by fav- by giving them favors that they the Jewish people hadn't even earned. So just to appreciate those things in our lives that we uh, maybe take for granted, those things that we haven't necessarily earned, but are still given to us anyways. Moving on. So we talk about the, we get to the tribes of Reuven and the tribe of God, and they request to settle the east, to settle east of the Jordan, which means that they're not actually going to come in to the land of Israel. And they, the uh, tribe of Reuben and God say mikne um, rav, which means that they have a lot of livestock. But I heard, um, you know, a fascinating interpretation here from Rabbi Katz that mikne rav could also mean to acquire a rabbi. And who is that rabbi? Namely Moshe. So we already learned in a prior parsha that Moshe was not able to come into the land of Israel. And he was going to have to be east of east of the Jordan, meaning he couldn't come into the land of Israel. He wasn't allowed to. And the tribes of Reuven and God had felt such attachment to um, to the to, to to their teacher of Moshe that they wanted to stay by his side, and they were willing to forfeit their section of of the land of Israel just to stick by Moshe's side, just to stick by their teacher's side. Again, Mikne Rav acquire a rabbi, they were willing to even forfeit their land of their land in Israel to stick by uh, their rabbi Moshe. So what's what's interesting to a, a side note on this is that Moshe really criticizes them for not wanting to go to battle together. And he even says, 
um, that, you know, 39 years earlier, when none of these people were alive, when none of the tribe of Reuben and God were alive at the time, 39 years earlier, the, um, the, he, he Moshe brings up some history, the, uh, the Meraglin, the spies, that, uh, they also didn't want to go into the land of Israel, and that almost totally destroyed the Jewish people. And in fact, they had to wander around the desert for 40 years after that as a punishment. And Moshe says, don't you see that you're just standing in the footsteps of your, your, of your fathers? You know, that you're making a major mistake here by not wanting to go into the land of Israel. And we have history to prove it by the Meraglim. So they give a, a very satisfying answer. They say that no, that we are actually willing to, um, to go to battle uh, that 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 we we are willing to go to battle for the land of Israel, and they are willing to even spend seven years fighting, and then after that spend another seven years um, allocating land. You know when 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 the land was allocated to the land of, to to the people to the tribes of Israel, they were even willing to stick around then, and then then and only then after fourteen years would they go back. Uh, so. With this kind of answer, there's an obvious question. Why didn't the tribe of Reuben and God just decide right off the bat to tell Moshe, you know, we want to settle on the east of Jordan to be next to you, but um, we don't worry, you know, we're going to go in and fight for the land of Israel. So why didn't they give this answer? Why they almost, it seems like they're almost pushing Moshe's buttons on purpose. So Rabbi Katz continues with a fascinating lesson that that's exactly the point. Reuben and God had such a close attachment to Moshe that they were willing to almost get themselves in trouble with Moshe to hear a Musar from Moshe, to hear criticism from their teacher Moshe. And Moshe, again, gives beautiful criticism by telling them, who are you, you know, your fathers, your fathers that fell for the sin of the Meraglim? And to hear such beautiful criticism, such beautiful tochacha, um, they were willing to kind of push Moshe's buttons by saying, we don't want to go into the land of Israel, even though they had a good, they had a good reason for that because they were willing to go and fight uh, with the other tribes of Israel. So it just goes to show you an interesting way to view this from Rabbi Katz, that the tribe of Reuben and Gad, they were trying to push Moshe's buttons just to be able to hear Musar from him, just to be able to hear some nice criticism and also, they wanted to. They didn't want to go into the land of Israel because they wanted to be teacher closer to their teacher of Moshe. Okay, so the tribes of Reuben and God they say that they want pens for their animals and then cities for their children. And when Moshe accepts their request to not enter the land of Israel, he flips it. He reverses it and says cities for their children and then pens for the livestock. So what's fascinating here is. Um, is what? Why is it that that Moshe switches this? You know, if the the tribe of Reuben and God say pens for our animals, and then cities for our children. And Moshe says no, cities for the children, and then pens for your animals. So Rashi says that the tribe of Reuben and God were mixing up the Iker and the Tuffel. They were mixing up the the Iker meaning the primary, the most important thing in life, versus the Tuffel, what's secondary, what you can put in second place. And um, Moshe says, no, 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 you thought the most important thing were, was your wealth, was your animals. But really the most important thing is your children. And Moshe, when he gives this, um, when he gives the answer, he very, you know, very calmly just reverses the order. 
he just, instead of saying pens for the animals and cities for children, he reverses the order and says cities for children and pens for your animals. And as a result of that um, kind of quiet, Moshe didn't come out and say, no, 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 you're totally wrong. You got this order totally out of whack. He simply just reversed it in his answer. And it was such a calm and gentle way to give criticism to the tribe of Reuben and God that in the Reuben and God's response, they actually take um, Moshe's criticism because you can see in their response, they give the right order. They will, they, they eventually do say um, that they, they talk about that they want the land for our kids, our wives, and our livestock, which is the right order, the livestock being the last thing, their wealth being the last thing, kids being first. Um, okay, so moving on. So in Moshe's response to Reuben and God, it's fascinating because half of, you know, uh, Moshe, or the tribe of Reuben and God only asked for their two tribes to be east of the Jordan River. And Moshe says, no, you're, okay, fine, Reuben and God can be east of the Jordan River. But in addition to that, um, half of the tribe of Menashe will also be included. So why was, why did Moshe just throw in half the tribe of Menashe? So I heard a fascinating answer here, because half of the tribe of Menashe being included means that they are, you know, that, that they won't be so, uh, that, that the tribe of Menashe will be very closely attached to the land of Israel because half of their family basically is living in the land of Israel and half of the family is living outside. And that will, this, this half of tribe of Menashe will bind um, these, these groups together because uh, otherwise Reuben and God might develop their own separate identity outside the land of Israel and have no connection whatsoever to the rest of the Jewish people. But when Moshe includes half of the tribe of Menashe, it means that there's going to be at least some family members of Menashe that are, that, you know, they can track that, that are going to be an heir to Israel. And that close contact, um, that influence that the half of tribe of Menashe that will be in Israel will have on, obviously, the half of Menashe that is east of the Jordan. But in addition, even Reuben and Gad, because they will, they will, you know, they'll have friends uh, in Menashe that, in the tribe of Menashe, that will, will some, of, some of those friends' family uh, will be living in the land of Israel. Okay, so moving on to the next Parsha of Parshat Maseh. So we're given 42 places where the Jews encamped. And, you know, what's fascinating here is it seems very, very repetitive. Um, I'll give you an example. So they journeyed from Elim and encamped by the Sea of Reeds. They journeyed from the Sea of Reeds and encamped by the Wilderness of Sin. They, journe- they journeyed from the Wilderness of Sin and encamped by uh, Dopka. They journeyed from Dopka and encamped in Elish. They journeyed from Elush and encamped in uh, Rephidin. So why is it, there's a, it's kind of an obvious repetition there. Why is it that they have to say they journeyed from one, you know, place A and they got to place B. Then they journeyed from place B and they got to place C. Just say it could have been much, much shorter. Uh, the Torah could have been much cleaner and, and simpler by saying um, journey from, you know, point A and then and then they journeyed to point B, and then they journeyed to point C. Why does it have to keep repeating A, A, B, B, C, C? You know, it just uh, seems very repetitive. So I heard a fascinating answer here, being that every single place that the Jews were, they set their roots. They totally accepted it. And the Jews, they knew as a fact 
when they were traveling in the land of Israel, sorry, when they were traveling in Bamidbar in the desert, they knew as a fact that this was not their final resting place. That they eventually were going to make it all the way to Israel. Yet, even though they knew that every single stop along the way was temporary, they were willing to set their roots down. They were willing to learn something. And I think that this is a tremendous lesson because how many times, you know, do we kind of go through stations in our lives just saying, okay, you know, let me get through this class, then I'll be happy. Okay, then let me get a good grade in this class, then I'll be happy. All right, now let me get a good job, at, you know, then I'll be happy. Let me find, you know, a house, then I'll be happy. How many times do we say we're never, ever happy with where we are? And we can see here that the Jews, they actually totally accepted every single place that they were, even though they knew as a fact that it was temporary because eventually they were going to make it to Israel. They still loved each, each uh, spot along the way, all 42 places. They set their roots down, and then they, they almost had to, the, the, the Parsha had to say that, you know, they journeyed from place A and they encamped in place B, and then they journeyed from place B and encamped in place C. And, you know, you can see that they really, they really loved every single spot, and they almost had to be ripped up from their roots in one place to be settled in another because they learned something and they appreciated every single spot along the way. Okay, um, so we learn that the, the that uh, Shem wants the Jews to destroy all of the Canaanite idols, and as a res but but in fact history shows that the Jews did not do this, and as a result they were driven to idol worship. And again, I think this just shows the importance how important it is, not only to, not to say you know I got this, not to say those those inclinations that we have to do idol worship or to do other types of sins to say, I'm going to be okay, I'm not going to throw this idol out or destroy it, I'll just let it be next to me, and it won't have any real impact. And um, we learned that that's actually not true, that even if we think we're so powerful that we don't need any help whatsoever uh, to, you know, to fight off the, the inclination to worship idols or do whatever other type of sin, it's important that we totally destroy those things. That that's really the only way to move forward is by destroying those things that might get in our way. Moving on, so we see we it gets to they talk about um, talking about cities, and the cities had an interesting aspect to them. That basically they had zoning, for lack of a better word, um, an area around the city for parks for a part that was undeveloped, and this was an area where you would ride animals and set up beehives. So. You know, just a fascinating thing there that, um, you know, this was kind of a uh, zoning even existed in the times of the Torah where you were not allowed to develop this area surrounding the land and you just had to enjoy it, ride your animals, set up your beehives, not something that you could necessarily uh, directly gain, you know, directly develop. So moving on, so we learn about um, the Ir Miklat, which means the cities of refuge. And... Uh, what's fascinating here is that um, I heard that, uh, so the Levites, the Levium, they did not have any actual uh, ownership of any of the land in Israel. They were only allowed to live in cities. And being that they could only live in cities, their, their, their existence was sort of transient. They lived in cities, they lived in different cities. They never had a land to call their own. And similarly, the Ir Miklat is a place of refuge where um, people that killed unintentionally, they could move there at, to this Ir Miklat and be safe 
from uh, the family that the, the family of the person they killed trying to kill them. So uh, this this person that that killed someone and then has to go to a near miklat has this feeling that they are abandoned, that they they're transient, that they don't have a home. And who better to welcome them into that city than the Levium? Those Levium who also don't have a home, who also don't have a land to call their own, who simply live in the cities. That Levium are the perfect characters to run these cities because they will have the maximum amount of compassion and feeling for the kind of the situation that those unintentional killers are when they flee to the Ir Miklat. Um, also interesting, you know, the Ir Miklat, um, an unintentional killer, an example of an unintentional killer is someone who carries a knife like they're going to stab someone and then happens to turn a corner and they actually do just that, that they stab someone um, by mistake. But the the reality is they were carrying the knife where that was a real possibility. They were carrying it in a place that when if someone runs into them, they're going to die. And he said, it doesn't seem like such a great person. But even still, the Levium, we can see that Levium are so invested and involved in their cities. Um, and, and we can see the Levium also feel like they don't necessarily have a home in the land of Israel. And similarly, even a person that's kind of as bad as someone that would carry a knife in a position where they could kill someone, the Leviums still have compassion even for those people. Okay, so my last point, we see that Rav Monk, he talks about how the Midbar ends with the tribe of Menasha and the daughters of Tzlachad discussing uh, how they can get the largest portion of the land of Israel kind of as possible. And they, it seems like they both, the tribe of Menashe and the daughters of Slavchad, have a huge desire and yearning to be in the land of Israel. And um, Rav Monk says this whole uh, Sefer of the Midbar is talking about, you know, the trials and tribulations of the Jews not wanting to come into Israel with Korach, with the, with the Meraglim. Um, yet we see at the end kind of all is well that ends well, that the tribe of Menashe and the daughters of Slavchad they both want the land, and as a result, it's kind of a nice ending to Midbar. Despite all the challenges that the Jews faced in the desert, at the end of the day, we can see just how much uh, desire the Jews have to enter it by learning about the tribe of Menashe and the daughters of Slachot. Okay, going over some of the points I talked about. So, we begin the Parsha talking by, um, we begin Parsha Mato talking about the power to annul vows, and the Ramban says this was only taught to the heads of tribes because we want to um, we want to make sure that people don't know the loopholes, that uh, only the heads of tribes should know that they're able to annul vows. But if everyone knows they're able to annul vows, then they're just people are going to be making vows willy nilly and simply going to this loophole by knowing that they can annul them with the head of tribes. So in order that language has integrity, um, then the Ramban says that this was only taught to the heads of the tribes that you can annul vows, so that people would only give vows if they're really truly willing to accept them. And then I talked about this interesting language, lo yachel bedavaro, um, lo yachel devaro, talking about how you should not desecrate, he should not desecrate his word, and I said this assumes that words are holy, that words mean something. And I also talked about here that, you know, those user agreements that everybody just slides through and accepts. Um, I said that it's kind of a similar idea that the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, can look at, you know, for example, Facebook's user agreement and say, hey, 
because you said, you know, you're going to protect users' privacy in this way and you didn't, we actually can come and punish you. And similarly, someone that says, I'm not going to eat potatoes the rest of my life, and they do eat potatoes, then the court can actually punish them because, again, their words carry uh, a certain amount of holiness. And if they desecrate those words, it's uh, worthy of a punishment. So moving on, I talked about this phrase, bli neder, which basically means no promises. And I said the coronavirus really taught us the importance of that word, that how many promises do we make, thinking, of course, we're going to fulfill them. And But the reality is sometimes there's things like coronavirus, things that just come up totally out of our control, and um, or even within our control, but for whatever reason, we can't follow through on our promises. And by saying bli neder, it keeps the integrity of our words. Okay, moving on. So we learn about a father who secretly annuls a vow from a daughter, and the daughter does uh, what she thought that, you know, she couldn't, what, what she thought that she prohibited. So again, I said, the daughter says, I'm not going to eat potatoes anymore. And the father hears that and says, no, you, you're allowed to eat potatoes, but does that secretly. And the daughter ends up eating potatoes, thinking that she was against the will of God. And we hear that Hashem actually will forgive her. But we had that, maybe we had an assumption that Hashem would not forgive her because she did something that she thought was against the will of God. So, um, but uh, we learned that, you know, Hashem kind of had this compassion to uh, forgive her, even though it was, she was doing something that she thought was against the will of God. Then I talked about this word, vayimasru, which means uh, that the, the, um, the soldiers that battled Midian, the soldiers, vayimasru, meaning they were delivered. And why didn't they just willingly go? Rashi says it's because they knew prophetically that Moshe would die after the war with Midian. And they were afraid to go because they loved Moshe so much that they didn't want to see him die. And despite all the complaints, despite the rebellion of Korach that we saw in a previous Parsha, um, we can see that despite all of these trials and tribulations in the desert, they, the people at the end of the day actually did love Moshe. And they loved him so much they had to be forced almost in a way. They had to be delivered uh, to fight Midian. Moving on, so we hear about Moshe and how he's angry. Moshe is angry with the army for not killing the, the women of Midian. And Rashi says that because he's angry, he ended up forgetting the laws about koshering pots and pans. And Elazar has to, has to teach it in his place. And again, I said that anger has such a strong such a strong emotion, it can make you forget, um, you know, basic things like koshering of pots and pans. So in that speech about koshering pots and pans, Elazar says, um, Yavo, that the people will come to battle, even though we already know that the Jews had already beaten Midian by this point in the Parsha. So why does it say they will come to battle? And I heard a fascinating interpretation here. It's not talking about they will come to battle after a physical force, after, after the Midianites. No, it's actually talking about the Yitzhar Hara, that when someone battles something as powerful as the nation of Midian, they are likely going to feel so good about themselves, so unbelievably haughty with such gaiva, that they're going to be willing to trample on everybody else. And it's important that they will, you know, after you, after you fight a battle, after you win a battle, whatever that happens to be, you shouldn't feel so haughty, so... Um, so good of yourself that you're willing to trample on everybody else. Okay, moving on, I talked about how the Jews won um, the battle against the powerful Midianites, and not one single person, uh, not one single Jew had died. 
And as a result, the officers brought an atonement offering. And why did they bring an atonement offering? It seems like they did nothing wrong. And I answered that this was actually a redemption to Hashem for doing a favor that they hadn't earned. And I talked about just how important it is, you know, it, it seems like they did nothing to earn the fact that not a single person would be lost, yet that's what happened. And I talked about for us how many things do we do that, you know, do we have in our lives we don't necessarily earn? And we should take the officer's lead by re- recognizing um, just how unbelievable it is that we have so many things in our lives that we didn't do anything to earn and how appreciative we should be for them. Moving on, talked about the tribes of Reuben and God and how they requested to settle the land east of the Jordan instead of actually coming into the land of Israel. And I talked about this unbelievable message from Rabbi Katz from Detroit talking about Mikne Rav, which could be understood of as they have lots of livestock and they don't want uh, you know, they, they don't want to go into Israel because of that. But Mikne Rav could also mean to acquire a rabbi, namely Moshe, because we know from a previous Parsha, Moshe was not able to enter the land of Israel. And as a result, he was willing to, um, the, the, the tribe of Reuben and God were willing to sacrifice their portion of the land of Israel just to be close to their rabbi, just to acquire their rabbi of Moshe. Because Moshe couldn't go in, neither did they, they didn't want to either. And again, I spoke about how Rabbi Katz continues by saying, you know, Reuben and God had a good answer to Moshe's criticism. Moshe criticizes them for not wanting to go to battle, and he reminds them of some history, some painful history, that 39 years earlier, the Miraglim, that they, um, the, the, the sin of the Miraglim, the sin of the spies, that they didn't want to go into the land of Israel, and they were punished tremendously. All of the Jewish people were punished by having to wander the desert for another 40 years. And they said, Moshe said, don't you remember this history? You're just like your parents, you know, that were no better. Um, and, and this was such a strong and sharp criticism. But yet the tribe of Reuben and God had a very good answer. They said, no, it's not like we're afraid to go into the land of Israel. We will go into the land of Israel. We'll help fight off the tribe of, we'll, we'll help fight with the other tribes. And then only once we've won the battles, will we come back. And this is a satisfying answer. So it's it seems strange. Why didn't they, if, if they already kind of probably knew that Moshe would be angry at them for not wanting to come to the land of Israel, why didn't they just say up front, we want to be on the east of Jordan, but with that being said, uh, we're willing to go and fight. And Rabbi Katz said they wanted to hear Moshe's musr. They wanted to hear Moshe give criticism, give to the to them. And it was such beautiful criticism that they were willing to hear it and, um, you know, accept that they, 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 even though they had a good answer for why they wanted to settle east of the Jordan, because the answer being that they were willing to go and fight, uh, fight and, and fight for the, uh, fight for Israel. Um, yet, even though they had that answer, they first wanted to like press, press Moshe's buttons by saying they didn't want to enter Israel. And by pressing Moshe's buttons, they got to hear a beautiful, beautiful line in the Torah talking with Moshe talking about the importance of not becoming, you know, like your forefathers that made all those same mistakes 39 years earlier that those Jews making the mistakes by the Miraglim. They wanted to hear that criticism. And just to hear that criticism was worthwhile. And then only, and then only after the criticism would they give their answer. The criticism continues a little bit, though, because... The tribe of Reuben and God say that they want pens for their animals and cities for their children. Yet Moshe flips it. Moshe says, you'll have cities for your children and then pens for your animals. And Rashi says they had their priorities in the wrong place. 
what's most important are cities for your children and only secondary are pens for your animals or your uh, is your personal wealth and um and again so just Moshe very very quietly gives this criticism he didn't say your priorities are totally out of whack all he did was is he reversed the order the tribe of God and and Reuven said they want pens for their animals and cities for their children Moshe just flips it in his response by saying cities for children and pens for your animals. And as a result, you can actually see that they took this criticism because in their response back, they said that they would provide for their kids, their wives, and their livestock, with the livestock being at the end, the kids being at the beginning. And you can see that they actually accepted what Moshe said. So interestingly, though, Moshe includes half of the tribe of Menashe with the tribe of Reuben and God. And I gave the... Um, possible reason because when half of the tribe of Manasseh is in Israel, half the tribe of Manasseh is out of Israel, the, that section that's out of Israel will be highly invested in what's happening in the land of Israel. And as a result, Reuben and God also, they'll be close to those people. They'll be close to the, the, the tribe of Manasseh that's outside of Israel, and they'll be intrinsically connected to the land of Israel because they have friends that have family members, because the tribe of Reuben and God will now have friends that have family members that are in the land of Israel. And as a result, they're willing to, um, that, that having that part of Manasseh will uh, connect them to the land of Israel. Okay, so next we get to the next part of Parshat Masse, and I spoke about how there's 42 places where they encamped, but it seems so repetitive that I said they journeyed from Elim and encamped in the Sea of Reeds. They journeyed from the Sea of Reeds and encamped in the, in the wilderness. It could have just said they journeyed from Elim, they encamped in the Sea of Reeds, and then they encamped in the, in the wilderness of Sin. Why does it have to give, uh, you know, repeat each place that they were, that they were at? And I gave the, uh, the interesting answer here that with every single destination that the Jews were in, in the desert, they appreciated where they were. They appreciated their station in life, even though they knew in the end they wouldn't be in any of those places long term. They were eventually going to Israel. Every single place that they had, they established roots. And they had to actually, the, the, that's why the Parsha has to be so repetitive, because the Parsha has to say they established who they were. A certain part of their identity was in that place. And only then were they taken out. And I said, what a beautiful lesson for us, that no matter what our position is in life right now, we shouldn't think, just let me, let's get out of this. We'll move on anyways, and we'll be done with it. No, there's something to learn about every single place that you've been to. Okay, um, I also talked about the importance of actually destroying idols and destroying those things in our lives that are getting in our way, not merely thinking that we can just overpower them, but to actually do something proactive to destroy them. Okay, then I talked about the interesting zoning rights, the, the zoning around the cities for parks, um, kind of a green space where uh, the tourists, where the commentaries say that you could ride your animals or you could set up beehives. And even in the times of the Torah, they had kind of zoning for parks. Um, also, I talked about how the Levium never really had um, any section of the land of Israel. They never had any farmland. They were simply city dwellers, kind of a transient people. And that goes well for the Ir Miklat, for the city of refuge for people that killed unintentionally. And I spoke about how someone that kills unintentionally feels like they have no home, feels like they have no place of belonging. And who better to welcome them into their city, into a city, than the Levium, who the Levium also, they don't have a home. They don't have a place that they can call their own, a land that they can call their own. And since they don't have that land to themselves, they're perfect candidates to welcome those um, 
those unintentional killers into the city of refuge. And lastly, I talked about Rav Monk, how he talks about the Sefer Bamidbar ends with the tribe of Menashe and the daughters of Slavchad really desiring the land of Israel. And I said all that, uh, you know, all is well that ends well, that even though the Sefer Bamidbar is full of events like like uh, like um, the Maraglim and Korach, etc., that seem like to undermine uh, their desire to get into the land of Israel. Yet, we learn in the end that the tribe of Menashe and the daughters of Slavchad are so desirous of getting into the land of Israel that uh, they're, in fact, you know, despite all the problems before that we read about, uh, this desire to be in the land of Israel is still going strong despite all of those things, that all that, all that, uh, all is well that uh, ends well. And with that, I'll read my poem. Officers brought atonement for a favor not earned. Reuben and God would fight for Israel, then return. We learn all about the power of speech at the end of Bamidbar, the land of Israel's within reach. And... With that, l'chaim l'chaim and chazak chazak v'nit chazik.